Let's study his word. I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Last week we started looking at some of the key issues in this election as it relates to us as Christians because it's important for us to vote according to biblical convictions. And I want to uh, just say as an aside, tomorrow night, I forgot to announce this, tomorrow night from 6 to 7 we're just going to have an informal time of prayer at the ministry center. You can come and go, but we're just going to get together and pray and ask the Lord to work uh, in our country and in this election and to be glorified and magnified at all times. But we have a choice in a few days. Aren't you glad it's almost over? I'm so tired of ads and commercials. I just can't even believe it. You know, none of the candidates are perfect. And none of them really is going to align perfectly with what the Bible tells us to do. So it's a challenge to have full confidence when we pull the lever. But as we said last week, one of these men is going to be president of the United States. And our best option is to find out who's going to most closely align with what the Lord says is right. Because the only guide that we have is right here. This is the only thing we can look at and rely on and say, this is what God wants. This is God's expectation. This is God's plan. So as we align with it as believers, we have to live and and talk and vote based on this book. So if it doesn't align with this, you have to have some hesitation. Which is why over the last, uh, last week and this week, we have taken some time to really look at the issues. And we've got too much material this morning, so pray for me because I don't want to keep here till 12. But there's a lot to cover and there's a lot that's important. Last week we talked about Israel and we talked about the rise of Islam and the integrity of the government. And I hope you've continued to study your Bible and stay up with the news and see everything through Scripture. And this morning what I'd like to do, and we're going to say a lot, so take some notes this morning. Let's interact a little bit. This morning... We're going to look at four moral issues. Last week was more global. Today is more moral. The issue of marriage, the issue of the sanctity of life, the issue of personal freedom, and the issue of religious freedom. Because for us as Christians, these personally interact with our faith. This is not whether you like tax cuts or or whether uh, you like... Uh, whatever, I don't, I don't want to get into issues this morning. These are ones that personally intersect with the Bible. Of course, none of us likes to be taxed, right? But these are issues that are related to morality. These are issues that are related to our lives. And the first two are so familiar that we won't spend as much time on them because there have been some very uh, important changes in our freedom over the last couple of years. So uh, we really need to, to look at this closely this morning. Genesis chapter 2 You're there in your Bibles. Thank you for turning. I know that didn't take much to find, right? Because it's just two pages in. But as you get there, I want you to notice, and and let's read it, and then I'll I'll say what I want to say here. Verse 22. The Lord fashioned into a a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I want you to immediately notice, and this really hit me like it never has in 48 years. I want you to notice the placement of the verses in the context of the narrative. In other words, where do they fall in the text? And you'll notice that these are the last verses immediately prior to the 
to, to chapter 3, which probably has a title in your Bible like the fall of man, right? How many have the fall of man in their Bible? Okay, most of you. So the last verses, right before everything changes, right before all of the world and all of eternity changes because of the choice to sin, right before that, God establishes his ideal for marriage. Before man messes it up, before we're corrupted, before we choose to be selfish and contrary to God, God says, here is my ideal for marriage. And notice that there are two distinct genders established here. The woman is fashioned out of the man. Both are formed, Genesis 1.26, in the image of God. Verse 18 says that the Lord created the woman because it wasn't good for the man to be alone. Every man say amen. It wasn't good for the man to be alone because we would have just watched sports all the time. So we needed a woman. So God says it's not good. I'm going to create a woman. And the ultimate purpose of this relationship is going to be marriage. Now, looking ahead, because it's only the two of them, there's no parents, there's no in-laws yet, God says that it's his design for the man and the woman to leave their parents and to be joined as one flesh. If you're reading the King James, you have the word cleave. It's a great word. It talks about what the Hebrew says, because the Hebrew word means to cling and to hold fast. So the man and the woman leave their homes, leave their parents, and they cling and hold fast to each other. Now, because this happens prior to sin, which is proven by verse 25, because they're naked and unashamed, there's no awareness of guilt and shame because there isn't any yet. It is very important to notice that there are no alternatives. There are no deviations. There's, there's no third option or second option other than a man and a woman. So just as husbands and wives are called to live together physically, emotionally, financially, socially, and in faith, with procreation a, a purpose of the marriage, verse uh, 28 of chapter 1, but not the primary one, it is for a man and a woman to come together and be married. Now, this passage and the context has a direct correlation to what's described in Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn unless you want to. We're not going to read it. But in Romans 1, it says that the result of man worshiping himself, which is going to happen in chapter 3, the, the result of man giving himself over to sin and saying, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. I want to, I want to be my own God. I don't want to listen to you. It doesn't matter what you think, what you say, what you expect. None of that matters to me. I'm going to do my own thing. The result of that, according to Romans 1, is that our passions get degraded and men and women ultimately at the extreme abandon, the Bible says, their natural functions and ex exchange them for what's unnatural. In other words, it's an intentional choice to sin. That's right here in chapter 3. And that sin is in defiance of God's creation and God's design. And there's no equivocation in relationship to marriage. Not only, according to the Bible, not Paul Rhodes' opinion, not what we want it to be, not Republican, Democrat, not blue state, red state, none of that, okay? According to Scripture, not only are same-sex physical relationships not God's intent, 
but there is no circumstance in Scripture that we can find under which that would ever lead to marriage in the sight of God or in obedience to His Word. And yet, in our country this morning, marriage between two people of the same sex is not recognized by federal law, but it is legal in six states. It's legal in the District of Columbia, and three other states have passed bills that haven't taken effect yet. So right now, 2012, November 5, November 4, whatever day it is, one-fifth of the states in our country have legalized same-sex marriage. The president announced his support of it in May, first president in American history to do so while in office. He's also said that homosexuality is not immoral, which means he doesn't believe in Romans 1. And he has signed a number of bills that promote and legalize it in terms of the military and health care and adoption and hiring. Now, that's not the only biblical value that's under attack. Even more prominent and more polarizing is the disagreement over the sanctity of human life. Now, turn over for a second to Psalm 139. Boy, the room got quiet. Psalm 139, these are serious, serious issues. The sanctity of human life. Now, this issue is playing out in two distinct ways in our country. In terms of abortion and in terms of health care, especially as it relates to the elderly. It's important to say at the outset that our experiences and our emotions make both of these very volatile issues. And especially in terms of abortion, there are decisions sometimes that are made prior to salvation that greatly affect people. It would be naive and it would be insensitive to think this morning that this issue hasn't touched people in this room. I read a statistic this week that 43% of women have had abortions. So men and women, maybe in this room, know this reality. We have a very close friend from a past ministry who um, had an abortion before she was saved. And it's been a very deep pain and regret for her, but she also knows God's forgiveness. And she has known the healing that comes through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and the reality of salvation and cleansing. And I need to say at the outset, if you've been through this and you still feel guilt and shame and and you're sad about it, please know that the grace of God is abundant. And He can bring comfort and He can bring strength and He can bring healing to your soul when you fully trust in Him. He can do that for any sin, not just abortion. He can do that for every single sin that we've committed. He can heal us and free us and deliver us from the bondage of that. And that's important for us to know. Because without that, we're hopeless. We can't save ourselves. Well, I'll just, I'll be really good this week and God will be pleased. No, He won't. Because His standard is perfection. The only way that we can be perfect in God's sight is for Him to say, I declare you perfect based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins, based on the fact that he rose again and defeated sin and death and bondage, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, he has freed you from that forever. And because of that, we can walk in the newness of life that he gives. Now, why would God do that? God would do that because he values our lives. He loves us. He created us in his own image. He has known our soul from eternity. He even formed us in the womb. Look at the text. Psalm 139, verse uh, 14. I will give thanks to you, 
For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 13. Forgive me. For you formed my inward parts and wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. I want you to take this verse by verse. Look at verse 13. The Lord himself, God himself, formed even our inner organs and our bones. It says he wove us together. Verse 14 says that we're a fearful and wonderful creation. It's not accidental. It's not thoughtless. It didn't just come into being by some cosmic abnormality and accident. He did it. It's an amazing work of the Lord that brings him praise and impresses our soul. Verse 15 says that the Lord knew every part of this creation. He was part of it. He sees it and he knows it all. And then verse 16 is the one that's so powerful. From the moment of our conception. Now you say, how do I know that, Paul? How how do you know that life begins from conception? Because he says, I saw your unformed substance. I saw it. It mattered to me. I valued it. And I have your days numbered in my book, starting with the one that doesn't seem countable to anybody. I knew it. I saw you. And when that cell divided, I was there. Verse 17 and 18, the Lord's thoughts about us are precious and he's near to us. If you want a rationale for the sanctity of human life, it's right there. But the overwhelming push in our country has been that none of this matters. That because we want to please ourselves and control what happens in our lives, that we can disregard what God says is right. And I'll tell you, this is a very key issue in this election. USA Today had a poll this past week listing voting priorities by gender according to registered voters. For men, jobs, number one, 38%. The economy, 37%. The deficit and health care, both 10%. Taxes, 6%. But for women, abortion was number one at 39%. Then jobs and health care, 19%. The economy, 16 And equal rights at 15 So this moral issue, what we see here in Psalm 139, is now a major political issue. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? It means that we need to know and believe what the Bible says, and we need to defend it. There's only one political party that has in their platform a call for a human life amendment, affirming, quote, the sanctity of human life, and that the unborn child has a fundamental individual right to life, which cannot be infringed, unquote. On the other side, the administration advanced the notion of abortion as health care. The president, and this is known fact, voted against the born alive law, which protects children born after an attempted abortion. He's been a voice for the abortion industry. He supported the right to abort a child at any time during the pregnancy up until the moment of birth. He defends partial birth abortion, which I'm sorry I'm about to get graphic, The doctor begins delivery of the live newborn baby, then puts scissors in the back of its skull and sucks out its brains. I know that's graphic, but that's not just words. That happens. The baby's 80% out of the womb, 
millions of Americans would love to adopt it, but instead the child is pulled out eight more inches and murdered. That's an actual procedure publicly defended by the president and his wife who wrote and defended it as a legitimate medical procedure. Now, this is a particularly important issue because future Supreme Court nominations rest on this. Four of the Supreme Court justices are over 74 years old. So it is very possible that the next president could appoint as many as three Supreme Court justices. President, and I'm just giving you facts here, the president will not appoint any Supreme Court justice who is not fully approved by Planned Parenthood which is the largest abortion provider in the world. He and the vice president are strongly in favor of legalized abortion. Paul Ryan's unmistakably pro-life because he's Catholic. Governor Romney now says he's pro-life. This also applies to health care, and we'll talk about this in a couple minutes, because the administration has decided it has the power to mandate what religious schools, charities, hospitals, and businesses must cover in their insurance plan, even though we are assured that nothing would change. And now the federal government's dictating that religious groups violate their doctrine and their conscience. Now the question arises, is it up to the government to decide these issues of morality one way or the other, and should that concern us? There's no question that laws govern behavior. It's just a matter of which behavior. And the movement over the last 50 to 60 years is to allow and even promote what is morally defiant to the word of God while restricting Christian values. So it's beyond hypocritical for the government to demand in one breath that there are no restrictions on what people want to do while doing exactly that to Christians, including our right to even speak about it. Because there is a push to say that when we teach the type of things that I've taught in the last 15 minutes, that that's considered a hate crime. Now, we need to be aware of this if we're not already. This is not, you know, a novel. This is our country. This is what's going on. And while we know it's wrong and that it's the enemy's agenda, certainly to damage the already marginal Christian influence our nation while desensitizing people morally, we need to ask a hard question of ourselves. And this question may, may wake you up a little bit. Is it hypocritical for us to demand governmental restrictions on people's behavior while also not wanting our beliefs and behavior to have any limits in terms of our faith. That question hit me on Friday. And I was like, wow, I got to deal with that, don't I? Because you just asked me that question and I can't ignore it. It makes me wonder, should we stop trying? Hear me out now, okay? Don't, Don't get up and walk out yet, all right? Give me a little time. Should we stop trying to get the government to do the work of legislating morality from a biblical standpoint and just press even harder to do the work that the Lord has given to us? In other words, instead of fighting, let's say, for a law to end legalized abortion, wouldn't it be better for us to diligently study the word, know our doctrine, live holy lives, and be lovingly aggressive with our witness for the gospel? Wouldn't that be better? The thing is, that's the baseline expectation for a believer. It's not an ideal. Well, someday I'll get to the place 
where I'm really studying the word and I'm really trusting God and I'll get to the place where I know some more doctrine and, and I'm living more holy. I'm kind of pushing past sin and, and I actually am telling people, no, that's, that's not an ideal. That's what we're supposed to do now. Don't, don't say to yourself each morning, well, in five years I'll be a different Christian. Be a different Christian today. Be that person today. So, so the question's out there. And I believe the answer has three parts. First of all, these two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can still be believers and still push for our country to follow the word of God. It should be an absolute that we diligently study the word, that we know our doctrine, that we live holy lives, that we're aggressive in our witness. That should not be future, that should be now. Second, one of the ways to impact our culture is to take a firm public stand on what the Lord says is right. We just sang, we will not be ashamed. We, we, will, not, we will not worry about what people think. And Christian this morning, church this morning, we need to not worry about what people think about us when we stand for the Lord. We're just supposed to stand for the Lord. And we're to say and know that biblical teaching is what makes society work. If we really wanted our country to function the way it should, if we were following the Bible, it would. But we don't. And third, just in case we think, well, that's a little presumptive, a little assertive. I don't know, Paul, you're a little past the limit this morning. Or that, or that we maybe don't have the right to, to push for biblical values. The third part of the equation is that the Constitution provides for us to do this. It was written in response to a suppressive, restrictive, overtaxing government and leadership that wanted to limit freedom. And certainly, while many of the founders believe in God and were at least deists, though some may have been believers in Christ, I think it's debatable, and this is my own personal opinion, I think it's a little debatable to say that we are a Christian nation. But we do know that they wrote the Constitution in a way to give honor to God while guarding personal and religious freedom. They made sure not only that the government could not restrict spiritual expression or establish one religion or no religion as the law of the land, they also wrote it in a way that it could not force people to act based on what was contrary to their spiritual convictions. The Constitution is an amazing document. The First Amendment says, Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That sentence is going to be under attack. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Remember that one. I'll talk more about that in a couple minutes. Thomas Jefferson said, the policy of the American government, I love, this is my favorite quote of the week. The policy of the American government is to leave their citizens free, neither restricting or abate, uh, excuse me, neither restraining or aiding them in their pursuits. Does that sound like our country right now? To go even further than that, he established a very insightful principle that really explains the crossroads that we're at right now. He said, when the people fear their government, there's tyranny. When the government fears the people, there's liberty. Wow, is that good. When the people are scared of the government and what they're going to do to them and how they're going to restrict them, that's tyranny. 
when the government is scared of the people saying, mm, yeah, you, no, you're not going to be in power much longer. That's liberty. And I'm not talking about any political party or president or anything. I'm just saying the government works for us. Now, what we've seen since 9-11, and I know this is not a lot of Bible this morning, but just go with it. What we've seen since 9-11, and even more dramatically in the last four years, is a huge change in how fully the government is trying to restrict personal religious freedom. This is an open fact, and it should sober us. And it should make us aware how much everything is set up for the return of Christ. Let me talk future for a minute. If Jesus Christ came back for us today, and that would free us of all the political ads, and it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be with the Lord today? If he came back for us today, the ability of the Antichrist to rise up and put into motion everything written in Revelation would be easy. It would even be welcomed. Certain things have been established now as normal that would play right into his hands. Imagine our culture without any biblical Christian influence. There would be no voice to show that what's happening is a fulfillment of God's word. Let's just take one thing. Let's just take the mark of the beast. The fact that someday everybody's going to have to make a choice. Either you take the mark of the beast on your hand or on your forehead or, or you die. Just take that one. You have a combination of factors just in terms of this that will make it easy. The fact that people so easily surrender information about themselves because they want things immediately. The normalization of getting a tattoo. The use of GPS. The advance of technology. The fact that everybody wants everything to be possible through something like their cell phone. People don't want to carry a wallet anymore. They don't want to carry credit cards. They want to just hold their phone up. Now we transfer messages by holding our phones next to each other. So how easy would it be to say, you can have all that on your hand? QR codes, things that are out there in our culture right now that we're now used to. Remember when barcodes came out? We were like, ooh, well, barcodes are, are 80s. Everything is instant. You can see how readily and how willingly people would line up to get a little mark on their hand that would allow them to buy and sell without delay and without encumbrance. Sure. And there's no Christian around to say, hey, wait a second. The Bible says, no, there's nobody there. It will be easy. It's already happening in some ways. I read this week about two schools in San Antonio that now track students using radio-enabled computer chips embedded in their ID cards. They didn't ask the parents. This allows administrators to know the precise whereabouts of any student on campus. They say, because federal funding is based on attendance, that it's a good thing and that it will make the kids safer. But it violates their privacy because information is being stored on databases without their consent and one expert warns about the long-term privacy issues created for a short-term game. He says location tracking can have a chilling effect on kids who consider even forming a club. They may skip the idea once they know administrators will know about every meeting. The consequences of tracking are that the more it happens, the less we're free. 
But as we get older and the generations come behind that have never known anything different, they are so desensitized now to this that they don't care that they're being watched by government agencies. Now, you know where I got that article? I got that from MSNBC, which is one of the most liberal publications. And even they were saying, this is bad. Benjamin Franklin warned about this 230 years ago. He said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Listen, let me be real clear this morning, because this is different for me. Our goal as Christians is not to try to force people to be Christians. Our goal is to want people to know the truth of the gospel, the offer of God's forgiveness, and the real hope and change that God offers. The change of our lives. When they hear the gospel, if we will give it to them, they will be drawn to it like we were at some point in our lives. And we want as believers to see them have the joy that we have, that you can be transformed and sanctified and made holy and be full of the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our goal. So the goal this morning, oh, we got to demand that the government will do this and force people to follow the Bible. That's not going to work. We want to show them there is no greater thing in life than to know salvation through Christ. There is nothing greater. When we share the gospel, when we model it in our lives, the Holy Spirit will do the work of conviction. But listen, that doesn't prevent us from being aware and outspoken about the loss of personal religious freedom. There are so many changes. There are so many things going on that seem innocuous. New York City says you can't buy a soda over 16 ounces. You can't go to Taco Bell, and Taco Bell is tasty, I must say. You can't go to Taco Bell and get a 32-ounce soda because the government says, we're not going to let you do that. They take a company like Chick-fil-A, and they say, we're going to limit what you do because of your beliefs. So in one action, you can no longer buy a large soda in Manhattan because the government declared that it's wrong and that it leads to obesity and we're just trying to watch out for you. And on another, Chick-fil-A is criticized, boycotted, and threatened. And, and it said you can't expand into Chicago because the president of Chick-fil-A verbalized his support for biblical marriage. He didn't condemn homosexuals. He didn't say that his company will refuse to serve people that support homosexuality, though the company does try to employ Christians, and it is closed on Sundays, which is a tragic, tragic fact. This is a... (laughs) You knew that was coming. This is a privately held belief by a privately held company that has zero impact on the function of the organization. And yet the mayor of Chicago and aldermen and the media expressed outrage and demanded that Chick-fil-A change its position or else. And you know what was awesome? Christians and non-Christians said this is wrong. Christians and non-Christians 
said the government should not be involved in this way. So we all stood in line for two hours on Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. And we watched as non-Christians and the media couldn't fathom why people were so quick to defend the company. I read a letter to the editor this week in USA Today, and the guy said, I support gay rights, but I increased my purchases at Chick-fil-A after Mayor Emanuel supported rejecting the restaurants opening a store in the city because Chick-fil-A's values are not Chicago's values. I was appalled at his attitude that seemed to say only people who agreed with his values could exist in his brave new world. And yet there's a common theme in the last four years, most notably, hope I'm not boring you yet, right? If you need to leave, go ahead. In the last four years, there have been huge changes in terms of the power of the president. There's been an open disregard for the Constitution's separation of power between the branches of the federal government. The Constitution says that the president has two duties to support and protect national security and to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That's it. Make sure the country's safe and make sure Congress passes the laws and executes the laws that are on the books. That's all. This is the first administration since Nixon to ignore the laws in the books simply because they disagree with them. In defiance of the Constitution. And what's even more frightening is that there have been substantial changes in the power and reach of the government to attack and kill its own citizens. President Bush was highly criticized for the ways that he interrogated terrorists and kept Guantanamo Bay open. But listen to what this administration has done. In May, the Attorney General Eric Holder gave a speech at Northwestern University in Evanston. He said in this speech that the government has the right to unilaterally kill its citizens without any court order or review. That means that the administration believes it has the authority to secretly target citizens for execution by the CIA without even charging them for a crime without notifying them of the accusations and without affording them an opportunity to respond. Instead, it condemns them to death without a shred of transparency or judicial oversight. So the president's saying, I have the right not only to hold people in prison without charge or without due process, but I'm able to kill any citizen that I deem a terrorist based on my sole inherent authority. Now, the founding fathers were wise men because they had seen sovereigns that killed citizens without due process back in the 18th century. So they wrote a constitution specifically to bar unilateral authority. They created checks and balances so the nation wouldn't have to trust the promise of the good intention of the government. What's ironic is that we won't call Benghazi terrorism, and for seven hours we won't send anyone to help our ambassador on U.S. soil, but we can kill our own citizens without question. And here's how you know that this is so wrong. Even the ACLU says it's wrong. Now, I've been doing this for 27 years. I've never once quoted the ACLU in a message. And I am about to. They said, few things are as dangerous to American liberty as the proposition that the government should be able to kill citizens anywhere in the world on the basis of legal standards and evidence that are never submitted to a court either before or after the fact. Now, why 
is this taking hold? For one thing, there have been dramatic changes in our cultural views as the generations shift. One recent poll showed that 25% of people under 25, okay, you got that? A quarter of people under 25 approve of police searches without warrants. 41% are agreeable to canceling freedom of the press, radio, and television. First Amendment. They're, They're okay, just get rid of that. More than half believe in government ownership of banks, railroads, and steel companies. And 84% of people under 25 reject the idea of patriotism as an important part of our lives. Now, it is not hyperbole to say that this is the most important election we've ever seen. Without a spiritual awakening and revival, we're about one generation from a total change in what the country looks like. And let me give you a really depressing, depressing evidence of this. According to a Christianity Today survey, 22% of pastors, 22% of pastors are still undecided how to vote. Now that not only shows you the changing values of the Christian church, but it shows you the hesitation of pastors to take a stand for the Lord. And what is naive about this lack of biblical conviction and this hesitation that will ultimately cost us our religious freedom? I read a quote that warned that diluting the eventual, excuse me, the diluting and eventual loss of political, economic, and social liberty inevitably brings with it the loss of religious liberty. And we're seeing that happening through a twisting of truth and through an aggressive attack on our rights. The First Amendment... I know this is a history lesson, okay? You guys good? One more history class in your life? The First Amendment does not deny the church the right to influence government policy. In fact, it's just the opposite. It says Congress cannot prohibit the free expression of religion. We always hear, oh, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. Listen, that means that the federal government is denied the power to form a state church. And the federal government is denied the power to restrict religious freedom. But it's being used today in exactly the opposite way that the framers drew it up. And we as Christians are being accused of pushing the boundaries of the Constitution by expressing our faith. At the same time, the government's actually denying the Constitution by restricting our faith. And if you had any doubt about this, there are at least 31 identifiable attacks on religious freedoms over the last four years. This is not my opinion. This is not alarmist. This is a matter of public record. I'm almost done. The mandate under the Affordable Care Act requires religious organizations to provide abortion-inducing drugs, sterilization, and contraceptive free of charge to their employees in direct violation of the organization's beliefs and freedoms. Now, this faced immediately public opposition from the Roman Catholic Church, and good for them. Because Christians didn't stand up and say, oh, we're opposed to that. We just The Catholic Church says, no, we're not going to do that. And the government says, fine, we'll give you a year to comply. My alma mater, Wheaton College, sued the government. Good for them. Hobby Lobby now, this week, sued the government. 
If this goes through and Hobby Lobby has to act in disagreement with their beliefs, also closed on Sunday, if Hobby Lobby has to go with this, it will cost them $1.3 million a day. A day. Not to mention the fact that it denies their beliefs and their freedoms. The government has overturned the Department of Health and Human Services protections for healthcare workers, which means they're not protected from being forced to participate in abortions. The government decided to no longer support the Federal Defense of Marriage Act signed by President Clinton in 1996 and then went a step beyond it and announced support for same-sex marriage. And President Clinton's out there just giving speeches. The government signed the hate crimes law, which has been a precursor to silencing religious-based speech. It removed religious public services, the only public service that will not be counted as payment towards student loans. It revoked a grant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which had used the funds for 10 years to effectively combat sexual trafficking because of the bishops' objections to abortion. The government argued before the Supreme Court that it could interfere, listen, in internal faith and mission of religious organizations and churches. The Supreme Court said, "Uh uh-uh, and denied it nine to nothing. Even the Air Force rescinded support for Operation Christmas Child. Those boxes back there? Even the Air Force Academy said, we will not allow support of that. Only Christian candidates can know about it and participate, which of course targets them. And there are at least 23 other instances of religious freedom being repressed. Not Islam, not Hinduism, not atheism, not humanism. Just biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. And to top it all off, and I'm done. A pastor in Arizona was recently jailed for 60 days for holding a weekly Bible study in his home because city officials said it was a church service and it violated building codes. A letter from the city of Phoenix said, quote, Bible studies are not allowed to be conducted in your residence or the barn on your property as these structures do not comply with the construction code for this use. I wonder what that's going to do to small groups. He didn't get fined. He went to jail. And this is not North Korea. This is Phoenix. Where is all this headed? And what do we do? Turn to Acts 4. Let's read this and pray. I heard a pastor say on the radio the other day, I don't know who he was. He was old. He said, this may be the last chance for us to turn the nation back to Christ. And he may be right. People have said that for years. Maybe it's alarmist, but I I think he's right. Other believers have said, well, maybe maybe persecution's good. Maybe, Maybe repression's good because the gospel and faith has thrived in that. And that's true. That may be a good thing. And and they say, well, maybe it will finally cause believers to stand up for the Lord. My belief is we should already be doing that. Why do we need persecution to wake us up? Why aren't we doing it now while we have the freedom and opportunity to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ and get them saved out of their sin? Why would we need, oh, it needs to get worse, so we'll finally wake up? Look at what these verses say. We've read them. We studied them a while back. Look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, 
They were amazed. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them. They had nothing to say in reply. But they ordered them to leave the council and began to confer with one another, saying, what should we do with these guys? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it won't spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, name of Jesus. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, but we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop talking about what we've seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on the account of the people, because they were glorifying God for what had happened. As we saw, we studied this passage months ago, it does not take anyone or anything special to be effective in standing for the Lord. What it takes is believing with all your heart in this book, believing with all your heart in the gospel, and having conviction and courage to talk about it. And that takes place by being in his presence all the time. They looked at them and said, these guys have been with Jesus. And what that does when we spend time in the presence of the Lord, it gives us a boldness and an outspokenness that the Lord anoints. God anoints that. He puts his hand on that. And he says, you are doing the right thing. You are standing for me. And as you say, I will serve and declare the name of Jesus Christ and praise him because he's the one who saves and fills with joy. God says, I will use you in a powerful way. We have the opportunity to vote conviction. We have the opportunity to vote based on who best stands for this book. I know they're not perfect. But we have the opportunity to say, this is what we believe. And God has his will. God already knows the results. But we have a responsibility to live our faith out, not only in the voting booth, but to live it out every single day based on our faith and our conviction and our commission from him. And I pray that we will do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you this morning. You are the God and Lord and King of all. You're not scared of nations. You're not scared of rulers. They are little pieces in your hand. Your word says that you decide who is and who isn't. Lord, as we come to a place of great choice for our nation, I can't remember a time, Lord, where the choice has been more different. I pray that you would give us wisdom and courage to stand for you. I pray that you would give us the assurance that you are at work. Lord, we know nobody is perfect. No candidate is right. They all have flaws. 
But, Lord, we want to honor you in what we do, not just Tuesday, Lord, but every single day. Give us courage of our convictions. Where we're unclear, Lord, teach us and guide us and show us what you say, not what I say, not what politicians say, but what you say. And, Lord, give us the courage and the strength and the conviction and the faith to live by that all the time. Lord, we look to you. You are our only hope. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, that he died for our sins. We didn't deserve that, not even for a second. And yet for all eternity, you declare that when we trust in him and give our lives to him, that you will secure us forever as holy, sanctified people. Lord, why would you care about us? And yet you love us so much. Lord, I pray you would give us the assurance of our faith this morning. Lord, for anybody, as we said earlier, that's here that has never trusted their life in you. I pray this morning would be that day, Lord, that they would turn to you, that you would speak to them and call them to yourself. And Lord, we will stand united as your people in this nation and around the world as those who love you. Lord, may we declare your name this week in every way. And Lord, be praised and magnified and glorified. Because one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you're Lord. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.